0: Welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and Eric Euland. Our guest today is Casey Mulligan. Casey, you've wa- walked us through some of your findings around uh, opioid overdoses during the COVID um, uh, shutdowns and the, and the onset of the pandemic. Let's talk about this chart that you've got behind us. Can you explain to people what this chart shows?
1: This is a chart going back to the 90s, um, and it's the ratio of two prices, comparing two prices, um, the price of what I call illicit opioids, which over much of this period was heroin and then fentanyl, compared to prescriptions. Um, and you can see back in the 90s, it says factor of five, illicit opioids were five times as expensive as prescriptions. Um and so and back in that phase, when people were dying from opioids, it was mainly from the relatively cheaper ones, which would be prescriptions. Um, and then when we got into really the Obama administration and the end of the war on drugs, we started to see, um, and even before that, where I think around NAFTA, or something in the 90s was bringing, making heroin cheaper. And then we saw fentanyl come in in a permanent way in really 2013 or 2014. Um, and now the illicit opioids are one-third the price. Instead of being 5X, they're one-third X of prescriptions. Um, so that's a factor of 15 change in in these two types of opioids. And it also helps explain what Joe and I showed in the Wall Street Journal about how the opioid epidemics very much become African-American. They, they did not have a lot of access to prescriptions. But when fentanyl became illegal, fentanyl became the thing. Um That got much more into the black communities.
0: So just to put a finer point on this, your your is it a finding or is a hypothesis that Part D, the creation of the Medicare Part D benefit drove an uh, original wave, an initial wave of opioid addiction and overdose and that are and that it was disproportionately white because. Of the access point, which was through doctors' prescriptions. And then at some point of, correct me if I'm wrong, 2019 or so, maybe even a little bit earlier, it started to cross as the price of illegal fentanyl plummeted or continued, continued to decline. And uh, the uh, Trump administration's clampdown on prescriptions and uh, indiscriminate shipping of opioids. Uh, began to kick in.
1: Yeah. um, The prescription phase also, some of it predates the Medicare Part D. Medicare Part D is a big factor. They came in 2006. Back in the 90s, you had really CMS programs. They were subsidizing hospitals um, based on kind of a scoring system. And they quickly figure out if they send people home with big jars of opioid pills, they'll get a good score from the patient and therefore lots of money from CMS. So, There were some other subsidies predating uh, the medicare
2: and don't forget in the mid 2000s there was a significant increase in illegal drug activity from mexico into the united states dirty methamphetamine or brown methamphetamine was the challenge of of the mid-aughts a very significant challenge Um, but nothing compared to the sorts of challenges that we're facing now and in particular the sort of damage that you guys laid out Um, that it has inside the African-American community that the president, President Trump, focused very intently on programs, policies, and ideas to lift up and help the African-American community. And now, um, with President Biden in office, it seems that not only has that been junked, but these sort of consequences of these policies chundering on for decades are not even on the radar screen of Biden policymakers up on uh, on Capitol Hill or in the White House.
0: Do you... uh Speculate. You, you mentioned the border. You mentioned NAFTA, which is interesting. I don't know that you and I discussed that before, but clearly uh, the the border was quiescent when President Trump left office, and now uh, there's a tremendous surge in illegal immigration. Is that driving the price decrease and the uh, amount of fentanyl on the streets of uh, American cities and rural areas?
1: I think so it's it's a little hard to know because it's illegal and it's difficult to get data. Um, but we do know from prior episodes like around NAFTA that when we increased the regal, the legal when we increased the traffic across the border, whether it be illegal or illegal, drugs came with it. Um, that the Clinton administration discovered that, um, and I assume that's a principle that applies still today.
2: I think that's accurate based on what data has been able to be shared by the Biden administration uh, in terms of truly the sorts of traffic across the border and the the sorts of things that are are being snuck in here into the United States. Um, But it seems as if now we have a set of policies designed to keep the border wide open or back wide open again uh, to, to allowing these sorts of things to come on in and create this price disparity that's pretty dramatic.
0: Yes, I agree. Casey, do you, when you look at the data, is there any, uh, the overdose data, is there any cause for optimism at this moment in time? I mean, it's been it's been increasing pretty steadily. Do you see anything happening that could slow this in the short term or any reason why you would expect the trajectory to, to not continue to be almost vertical? Well,
1: I, I think the... Um, Law enforcement is important here. And we just saw, I believe it was uh, two days ago, that the people of San Francisco said, uh, let's make law enforcement great again. Mm -hmm. And the the more uh, that law enforcement can be brought back to more of a normal operating procedure, we have a chance at having the opioid situation be at a more normal level instead of this very unusual high level.
2: And, and law enforcement, local, partnered with the appropriate national programs in conversation with affected communities, communities of color, minority communities who are particularly hard hit. Uh, but understanding that this is a nationwide problem, putting together good solutions for these communities across the country seems like the Biden administration is not even paying attention. Not even They're not late to the switch. They haven't even focused on this. Well, there are plenty of people now... Who are damaged by um, this exposure to cheap opioids, which seems incredibly counterproductive, especially given the accomplishments of President Trump in his first term and the potentiality for continued improvement here um, and, and the right sort of policies and programs that really could make a difference. Yeah, one of the t- charts
1: I put in my book about the Trump administration was just how often did the topic of opioids appear in the Federal Register in the congressional record? Um, under Obama versus Trump. Um, and that compared that to climate change. Not surprisingly, during the Obama eight years, there was all kinds of chatter about climate change. Nothing on opioids. I mean, there were years when opioids was never mentioned once in Congress. Those Congress people talk all the time, but they couldn't imagine mention that one word. Um, and that reversed under Trump. Trump brought that on the radar. Um, and it seems like with Biden, we're going back to uh, talking about climate change re- Uh, rather than this problem that's actively killing people as we, as we tape Um, talking about a hundred years in the future instead. So let's, let's talk a little bit about
0: um, if you had, if you were uh, invited into the white house next week or this afternoon to go in and give Biden and his team some advice, let's start with where you think the economy is right now. Obviously inflation is universally understood now to be a huge problem. Uh, Many people, including uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary for President Biden, thought it was going to be transitory. She's just admitted that it's not. People uh, are furious about the price of gas, the price of groceries, uh, grocery shrinking, which is the latest thing, shrinkflation. Uh, Where do you see the inflation issue for uh, the economy right now? What would you tell Biden and his team? And, And how would you get it under control if it's anything more than just transitory at this point,
1: I, I think one of the reasons people are so upset about inflation—and they are—is because inflation doesn't ever come with good things. And so it, 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 it's really an overall aura that it, that people are detecting. And I think that's really a lack of productivity. And it, you know, inflation each into your wages—it means you're not a, you're not that productive. Um, all these regulations, supply chain issues, um, all this disruption around this one virus, um, that's not enhancing living standards. It's making them worse. Um, and inflation, I view, is a symptom of that. Um, so they like talking about the root causes. Uh, the root cause would be, you know, make America great again. Help us do the things that we're capable of doing. We we're capable of pumping 13 million barrels a day of petroleum in our country. Um, we know we've done it before. Why can't we do it again? Why can't we reach new highs on that sort of thing? America's definitely capable, but we're not living up to our capabilities in large part because of uh, federal and also state and local policies
0: getting in the way. So you view, uh, broadly speaking, are you saying that our inflation problems are a supply problem and not a uh, increased demand? I mean, they're there's a lot of talking points on the left now. Well, yeah, the economies. I think uh, President Biden was on Jimmy Kimmel uh, recently saying, look, it's the fastest growing economy in the world. You're going to have some inflation. This is all due to the fact that people are hustling and buying, and we want people hustling and buying, and we want the economy hopping. Uh, what would you say to that, uh, that counterpoint from maybe President Biden's chief, chief economic advisor if you were in the Oval Office right now?
1: Well, but, but look at the productivity uh, statistics. I mean, we're or the real wage numbers. I mean, we're not able to produce as much per man and woman hour as we were um, a few months ago or a few years ago. And that's, um, that's fundamentally what drives prosperity. And that, not to mention these other health productivity issues, which aren't part of the official GDP, but they're still very important to people. It's harder for people to maintain their health um And that's very important. Um, what is it? Go by that,
0: Casey. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what do you mean it's harder for people to maintain their health right now? you know, to keep
1: their weight under control. I, I don't know about at the moment, but from April 2020 through at least the end of 2021, when we see the people dying from all these things, and we know that behind each death, there's people who didn't necessarily die, but their health's not in good shape. They've come down with diabetes, they've uh, having heart issues. Um, struggling
0: with addiction. But is this a generalization on your part? Is this an anecdote or do you have data that shows that people's health outcomes beyond the, the opioid overdose data that people, that uh, mortality increased for other categories and other health outcomes uh, deteriorated as well? We have less
1: data, but we do have data on, you know, non-fatal health problems in these same categories, drug use, um, cigarette sales, Alcohol sales—that's um, those are all examples of consumption that often doesn't result in death, but it's still resulting in a health problem and may lead to death in two, three, four years down the road.
2: And if that data—it sounds like—is is putting out some warning, putting up some warning flares, um, and there's a significant cohort of people who have more challenges for healthcare. Um, their health care, personal or their family or their communities. Uh, is that a bit fair to be a longitudinal, longitudinal impact? I mean, will we see that play out over decades of time, courtesy of what's happened here in the past few years with the pandemic, the shutdowns, the inhibition of communities to be able to gather together for people to be able to work and exercise and, and interact, socialize with each other?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of these health issues do have kind of a capital component like you gain the weight and you can change your behavior and stop gaining further weight, but losing the weight's tough, right? Uh, you do some damage to your liver, you're drinking during 2020 and 2021. You know, that liver might not be able to repair. Hopefully you can stop continuing to damage it, but um, that's a an asset or really a liability you're, we're going to carry forward. You know, the kids who didn't learn their um, reading and writing and arithmetic, during the pandemic, that's a liability they're going to carry forward for many years.
2: That's some uh, sobering observations uh, to, to think a little bit about the fact that over decades we're going to have to deal with physical challenges, societal challenges, cultural challenges, all as a result of what everybody did um, or imposed on people in twenty and twenty-one, just a year and a half, two years of that sort of. Sort of change, um, can last for decades, for generations, is really um,
0: profound and pretty intimidating. Do you think, uh, Casey, that we can reverse this trend easily? I mean, we've we've spent some time in this conversation, obviously beating up on on President Biden, but some of this, you tell me. I mean, some of this has got to be outside of his control. Um, you know, outside of you mentioned pumping thirteen million barrels of oil, he could clearly change U.S. energy policy permitting, uh, changes rhetoric, say so he'd seen the light. We could get more supply of natural gas and oil. He could use the Defense Production Act to reroute steel to allow more piping to go in to move gas around. He could do all sorts of things on energy, but on some of this all-cause mortality uh specifically, but let's say inflation, generally speaking. I mean, it does not sound like this is this can be fixed in three or four months. This sounds like this is a long, that we have maybe sustained long term damage and that bending this curve is going to take a while. Or am I too pessimistic?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can look at it that way, but let's stop adding to the problem. Um, um let's, stop digging. Yeah, stop, stop digging. And you know, let's try to get the drug issue back to where it was. And, you know, I'm not going to bring back the people who, who died. No. Um, you might have trouble getting people who are addicted, unaddicted. But at least let's stop adding new new folks into, into that category, which the latest, I mean, my data really only goes through the end of 2021. It seems like we've continued to add these problems at the same pace as we had throughout the pandemic.
2: So in a world where inflation is profound and and significant, um, economic growth is forecast to slow also rather significantly, but unemployment is low. Um, Productivity, to your point, is being challenged and and wage growth obviously is under stress. But in the past, at least the the traditional way it seems like of breaking inflation is to push the economy into a recession with what the Federal Reserve is doing in raising interest rates. I know they're trying to slow the economy and cool the economy without actually inevitably tossing us into a recession. Only been successful once in 11 tries since uh, World War II. In a world where ultimately we're going to end up in a recession, what is it that you think we're going to be facing here over the next couple of years in terms of how an, a recession might look what sort of impacts there might be, you know, some of the macro things to keep in mind, given that, you know, it's been a, uh, over a decade since the last time we went through a recession, the Great Recession of 08-09. I don't
1: think a recession is needed to end inflation. We had plenty of times in, in a long U.S. history of the economy booming and inflation being nothing um, or even negative. Um, it's not a necessary thing. But it appears that we're going to have one. I think housing on the construction side, I'm not talking about trading of homes that already exist, that that'll continue to happen. But I think housing construction is going to have a lot of pressure on it because of the high interest rates and because of the higher interest rates and the supply chain issues. Um, I think autos have a similar challenge. Um, And those two industries together may be enough to create what we normally call a national recession
2: an international recession as unemployment would creep up um, and a variety of of stressors on individual lives, on family lives, on community lives occur, has your research demonstrated in the past that there are some of these significant societal consequences that occur that you've seen now as as you've been looking at the data through the the shutdown, COVID, and, and the aftermath of the pandemic?
1: Well, the pandemic recession is kind of different in terms of health. Uh, You had other recessions where people were healthier.
2: And why would Um, that be?
1: And less traffic accidents, um, less construction accidents. A lot of your business cycle involves construction. Construction is a bit dangerous, Um, certainly more dangerous than the types of jobs that we have. Um, And also, we don't quite understand why. But nursing homes seem to be more productive during a recession. Maybe it's easier to retain staff. That's a hypothesis. But the nursing home survival rate seems to be higher in recessions and lower in expansions.
2: Um, so, so average recessions post-war last you know, year, year plus, um, in the event that the Fed's unsuccessful, to your point, you don't grow the economy the white, the right way without significant inflation. Um, unemployment is a consequence. What are some other things about a recession that, that people should be keeping in mind?
1: Well, the number one thing, and I warned uh, Hassett and Trump about this, um, and said, if we ever get a recession, I'm really worried that Congress is going to make it worse. And what, Congress what would Congress has these do called, to make it worse? They have these things called automatic stabilizers, but they're actually automatic destabilizers. So if we had a recession coming on, especially I could see a Democratic Congress says, uh-oh, time to pay people $600 a week again. And that would make the recession even deeper.
2: And that would be $600 um, a week above the standard on insurance employment. Uh, right. right. On top of the standard four
1: or 500 there would okay. be a 600 And we've seen that in previous recessions. Obama came up with the so-called stimulus, but the stimulus was just a dozen different ways to pay people not to work, pay people to be in poverty. And you're going to—maybe it's a compassionate way to do it, but— you end up with more unemployment and more poverty when you do that and that's why the obama expansion was really a non-expansion
2: so that's the way you've con- that's why you've concluded that um, to your point the obama recovery wasn't much of a recovery it was incredibly slow so many people did not go back to the workforce um and there are a lot of uh societal consequences with a, with a long period of incredibly slow growth yes
1: uh, now so I, I urge, and people like you, you when, we, when you're meeting with Congress, if you can urge them, please don't make it too much worse,
2: because
1: um, that's been the historical pattern.
2: But what could Congress do, or the Biden administration could do, to to make it better? Again, you've got a couple minutes in front of the Resolute Desk. What would you lay out as key policy priorities beyond stop digging, beyond don't make it any worse? Um, that Congress and and a President Biden a President Trump in his second term should be doing to get out of a recession as quickly as possible. I mean, we do have safety
1: net programs already in place. We already have food stamps. We already have Medicaid. We already have all these things. So let them do their job. Don't don't add to them. Don't disrupt them. Um, that that's kind of easy doing nothing um, that resist the temptation to do something. And you can also do as we did in the pandemic recession. Maybe this is an opportunity to get some government red tape out of the way. Um, there certainly Many places where government is in the way of human flourishing, and maybe that would the recession would be an excuse to begin to fix some of that.
0: Well, Casey, uh, you mentioned that construction is a, a more dangerous job than the jobs that we have, but you wrote a great book about your time in the Trump administration called "You're Hired," which I I think is sort of a minor classic for those people who want to study. White Houses and how they operate and various functions of it it may not be on the bestseller list, but for those people who want to understand the Council of economic advisors and a and a sliver of a of a White House in a period of time, it's really well worth the the read. It's been a pleasure to have you here. It's always fun talking to you and once again, uh, I personally leave this conversation having learned a lot so thanks very much Casey we appreciate it we my share. pleasure
1: good to see you guys
0: Thanks Casey. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Eric.